we are, then you can look forward to not a Sabbath tomorrow, but a fast. Fast of the seventh month, as lined out in the prophecies of Zechariah, chapter 8, I think it is, 7 or 8. All having to do with the destruction of God's temple, the killing of God's leaders, and that type of thing. And God did say that we would fast on those days as a remembrance, and we're doing it now as a prophecy, and as what we're living through, of the church having been destroyed, and the leadership axed, and various things that have occurred to fulfill that prophecy yet again. And now, of course, we're looking to a resolution, solving of those problems, and God to begin to regather again. That's not good English, to regather, not again. He has regathered before, so I guess it is. In any case, this is a period of time, starting yesterday, that picture the return of Christ to claim his bride, having gone on a long journey, and the wedding to occur uh, very shortly thereafter. We'll get to that as the species and progresses. But I told you yesterday that once we had started down this route of discussing the bride and what needs to be done for the bride to be ready, that I would continue it today. Uh, so we will do that. This is as important a meet in due season, I think, as we can discuss. And even though I had read that passage in Jeremiah many times about a woman compassing a man, I had not really caught the full significance of it. I understood we need to be turning to God, but the formal activity involved there, uh, the organizational structure that is put there, is that there is a change, and now he is the one being, if you will, coy or turning away, and the one who needs to be enticed, uh, convinced, convicted that we are the ones he should marry. Because he has done many things in the past, as we saw in Ezekiel 16, to give great gifts, to forgive sins, to clean up everything, to give us opportunity, as he did at baptism. Our history, our past was blotted out. And then we became lackadaisical, taking him for granted. We've seen this happen in all of our relationships in life, where we can easily take family members or spouses, or whatever, for granted. And it hurts the relationships. Well, we're talking about an eternal relationship here, and it is one that must be on fire, be fervent, be full of love, and positive emotion forevermore. God will simply not tolerate lackadaisical relationships. Now, sometimes in our lives as humans, we do. But it's less than what we would wish, is it not, when things get that way? We want to renew. We want to make things good. We want to make them intense, if you will. To be close. To feel that kind of emotion in our relationships. So it's important to us. 
We don't always achieve it. In fact, in many respects, over time, we fail miserably at achieving that. But God does not want it to be that way. And his relationship with the church in some ways wasn't bad, but it certainly was lackadaisical, Laodicean, to use Revelation 3. And it's something he would not tolerate. Now, you and I might say, well, that wasn't bad, and yet we were committing adultery with this world in many, many ways, and making idols of things in this world and the way of life in this country we live in, for that matter. And that has to change. We can't be seeking the American dream and the American way anymore. The American way is repulsive to God. He hates it. He is going to destroy it very quickly. We need to cozy up to that idea. You know, we grew up as Americans. We grew up being the ones the rest of the world was in many ways jealous of. They had the American dream they wanted to come share. We have gone into moral bankruptcy financial bankruptcy, emotional bankruptcy, to the point we are not a Christian or a righteous nation whatsoever. We're going pell-mell after another sutor. You see, Christ has competition in this marriage thing. Satan the devil is trying to woo us, if you will, to marry him. He is the one who is drawing this nation down, playing on their human nature, yours and mine included. And he would seduce us into going his way, this nation's way, this world's way. And we have to fight that tooth and toenail in every facet of life. Because he hates every word of God. He hates it all. He knows it well, but he hates it. And he will use false religion against us. He will do everything he can to try to seduce us away from he whom we have vowed to marry. And he works full time at that. And in fact, maybe even today, he is before the throne of God, pointing out our faults, our problems, our weaknesses, our sins, because he does go before the throne of God and try to get God to reject us. So we have not only our own problems, whereby he might scratch his head and say, do I wish to marry that one? But he also has Satan, the devil, going before the throne every day, reminding him of our weaknesses and our sins and how he has us in his hip pocket, how we're doing things his way. And Christ even told the Pharisees who thought they were righteous. They really did think they were righteous. Do you think for a moment they didn't recognize their sin? Or that they did recognize their sin, I mean? No, we're of Abraham. We are righteous. And Christ said, you're the spawn of snakes. 
whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. What a stench that is. What else could you call somebody that was much worse than a dead body rotting in a grave? That's what he called them. But they really did assess themselves as righteous. You see how deceitful and desperately wicked the human mind is? We can draw ourselves up and say, I'm more righteous than so-and-so. I do things better than so-and-so. What's wrong with so-and-so? Can't we? comes very easy to us. It's hard for us to get the beam out of our own eye so that we can see the mode in someone else's. Because we can't see the beam in our own eye. So if corrected, we'd like to point the finger at someone else. Well, somebody else might be a problem. It's easy to find problems with one another, isn't it? But we need to be very, very careful that we don't get self-righteous about it. So it goes on and on. But let's understand that we have an enemy who is bound and determined to separate us from our betrothed. We are engaged to be married. Let's go to the book of Luke. I want to begin here in verse 13, because this chapter does go into marriage and the return of Christ. So it is germane to what we're talking about uh, as we go through it. I think we shall see that. Anyway, verse 13, one of the company said to him, Master, do you speak to my brother, that he, will you speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me? And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? How come I'm the arbitrator here? Why should I go to your brother and ask him to share the inheritance with you? That's an internal thing to your family. It isn't something that Christ felt was his responsibility. And he said to them, speaking to his disciples, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of things which he possesses. Now in our society today, that's the way it is looked upon. Your life is equated to your bank account, to the number of toys, to the number of things you have. Materialism is one of our greatest gods, one of the gods that we worship the very most. But Christ is putting the lie to that right here. We don't keep score by how many things you have, what your finances are. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. So he's going to explain that statement. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. I have so much. I am so wealthy, so fantastically rich, so important. And I have more than I even have room to have a place to put it. What am I going to do? Ah, here's the solution. This will I do. I've got it now. I will pull down my barns and build bigger barns. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. My present barns aren't big enough. Let's just tear them down, throw them away, 
and build such big barns that you can see them for miles. And then I can put everything I have in those barns. They'll be big enough. And I will say to my soul, Oh, soul of me, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You got it made, man. You are a self-made man. You have all you could ever want or need. You are the epitome of the American dream fellow. Oh, everything's good. Life is good. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to party life away. But God said to him, Uh-oh, you fool. Here's someone at the epitome in this context of having lived the American dream. Had every material thing that could possibly be there. You fool. This night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose shall these things be which you have provided? Uh, did you forget you're mortal? Did you forget you're human? Did you forget you could die? And I'm telling you, you may die tonight. Maybe he was telling he was going to die that night. Sounds like it, doesn't it? Then who's going to get all your goodies? How are you going to control that? Write a will? They'll take it to the lawyers and get it thrown out. You don't have anything to do with it. So is he that lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. So we have a so-called Christian nation here which is trying so desperately to lay up treasures for itself. And money is the big deal. And I've got to get paid this much and I've got to have that much and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. But are we giving God the attention He needs, that He requires? Are we rich toward Him? That's where we, as a potential bride, have to be. And He's condemning the whole way of life of the world and Israel, particularly us, today. Condemning the whole deal, isn't He? And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, Take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. Don't worry about it. How many of us worry about it? We worry ourselves sick about it sometimes, don't we? That doesn't mean we're supposed to just lay down and not do anything. Expect God, you know, lay down on your back and open your mouth and expect birds to drop food or something in it. We should be diligent. We should wish to work. God tells us to work, and if we don't, we shouldn't eat. So he's not saying don't think about these things, but he says don't be anxious. Don't worry about it. You put first things first, and all these things are going to be taken care of. We've got to put the Father and the Son first. In our minds, our emotions, our lives, our feelings. If we do that, everything's going to turn out okay. If we don't, nothing will turn out okay. So you might as well worry. 
He's telling you here, no worries, as the Australians tend to say. Don't worry about it. It'll be taken care of if you do first things first. That requires what? Faith. Trust in God. Trust Him, and you don't have to worry. Don't trust Him, and you do worry. So worry, really, is a lack of faith. Some people tend to be worry warts by nature. You say, well, I just worry. I've always worried. I worry about everything. Well, change. Quit it. You don't have to do that. He's showing you a better way. I've always been doesn't cut it, does it? What about when it came time to repent and be baptized? Well, I've always... No, you're supposed to repent. That means change that. Don't be that way anymore. Do differently now. Quit it. That's what he's telling us here. How do you change your whole approach to life? Your whole personality, in some respects. Takes hard work. Takes prayer. Takes trusting God when you don't feel like trusting, doesn't it? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You worry because you don't see an answer. Put God first and believe you'll get an answer. It will come. But you can't kid yourself either and hedge your bets and say, well, okay, I'll sort of trust God, but... He wants our entire attention. He wants our whole heart. Not half-hearted, not on the fence. He wants us. He will settle for nothing less. He wants it all. Be rich toward God. Verse 23, the life is more than meat, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the birds? Raven doesn't amount to much, but and he's busy. He's flying around looking, isn't he? But God takes care of him. So we need to be flying around, finding some answers. But we need to put it in God's hands and trust Him and not worry about things. That's the point here. Which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? Can you make yourself 18 inches taller? 19.2 if you're royalty, I guess. No? You're just about the height you're going to be unless you get old and shrink. That's the way it is. Can't change it. You know, they've said 90% of the things you worry about never happen anyway. I'd say it's more like 99%. The things people worry about never happen. But they drive themselves nuts over it. Can't sleep. Can't eat sometimes. Work themselves into a dither and a lather. If you then be not able to do that thing, which is least, adding 18 inches to the height is... Not a big deal to God. 
you need not be able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? Why, you, you know, you can't change your height. Why do you worry about these other things? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was the wealthiest man, wisest man that ever lived. He had it all. Anything he wanted, he had it. Anything. And as fancy as he might dress, he wasn't as pretty as one little flower. Why do we worry about these things? If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he take care of you and clothe you, O you of little faith? Didn't I just say it's a matter of faith and trust? And he's saying here, if you worry, you have very little faith. Faith is one of the biggest gifts of the Spirit of God. It is one of the big three, faith, hope, and love. And that is a commodity that Christ said, will I find it when I return? It is highly suspicious, in other words, that there will be faith on the earth. There will not be much. The only place that there will be any is within the hearts and minds of people like you and me who understand the truth that does set us free. Free from what? Anxiety, worry, frustrations. Because we do trust. We put it on Him. Cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. I think that's in Colossians, somewhere there. O you of little faith, and seek not you what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, neither be you of doubtful mind. Don't doubt. Doubting Thomas was not well received, was he? He didn't have the faith that that really was Christ. Well, let me feel your, let me see if there's any scars. Let me check you out here. I don't believe it. Turn loose the branch, to use the old story. Trust God. Leave it in His hands. Do what you can. But again, the translation should be anxious thought, worry. Sure, you take thought, don't you? We all plan. We all look for work. We all write to-do lists, I guess. I have to, or my mind will forget so many things that I need to do. So it's not wrong to think about your life and what needs to be done. But you're instructed here, told very clearly... By your husband to be. Don't worry, I will take care of things. That puts us in the same position as a wife with her husband. And maybe she worries, worries, worries about this and worries about that and pushes at him and pushes at him. And he finally has to say, honey, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. She shuts up and worries about it, or something like that. <laughs> we are all so human, are we not? <laughs> Hard to get away from that. 
hard to just turn loose and say, okay, honey, you said you'd take care of it, take care of it. I won't bug you anymore about it, I'll just leave it in your hands. And then go away and actually not worry about it. Might have to go in and pray about that one, that's okay, he's there. He'll listen, cast your cares on him. For all these things do the nations, oh, let's see, did I leave this out? Seek not you what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. I read that, verse 29. Verse 30, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you have need of these things. God didn't create us here without knowing that we needed food and water and air and some of those things, did he? He knew that. Now, he did tell us, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that all of your children from here on out are going to have to work by the sweat of their brow. I'm going to place some curses on you. And life is going to be tough. He told us that right out of the gate, didn't he? Life's going to be tough. Deal with it. But then he comes along and says, I'm going to show you a way. I'm not going to remove the difficulties necessarily, but I will take care of you. Don't worry about these things. So for people who were seduced by the devil away from God, he approached them in the Old Testament and said, I want to marry you. And I'll do this and this and this and this and this for you. Will you marry me? And they all said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Where's the ring? Where's the ring? I want to marry you now. We'll do anything you say. I love you, honey. All right, let's get married. Got her done. Made the covenant. Both agreed. Well, when are you going to bring such and such home? I need more. Quail? Hannah? Hey, you got a great wardrobe. It never wears out. may not be according to the latest fashion, but hey, it works good. You don't need 43 pair of shoes. Those you got are going to last 40 years. Oh. What do you need them all for? For But we have our desires. You know, he got tired of a whining, murmuring wife. Wouldn't do what he said. Said she would, but then didn't. Well, he finally just said, I've had it. I'm out of here. Take care of yourself. Oh, things haven't gone too well. Went through a long period where God wasn't involved with Israel. He's still got the Jews written off. He has nothing to do with them at this point. Physical Jews. I'm not going to deal with you till you accept those that I've sent, meaning the disciples in the New Testament church. Said it very clearly. Just wrote them off. And yet we have a lot of the church today looking to them for the answers. Why would you write, look to someone that God completely wrote off the page 
for answers. It's ridiculous. But I guess we just don't understand. He knows you have need of these things, but there's something more important going on. Worry about your relationship with God if you're going to worry about something. He says, this is just physical stuff. Quit worrying about that. Get it right with me. I'm the one that's going to marry you. Get your relationship straightened out. Rather, seek you the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Put me first. These things I can handle. Don't worry about it. Sometimes we put him to the test. Well, if you don't have it here by tomorrow at 3 o'clock, or I'm going to obey you and keep the Sabbath and tithe for six months or a year, and if I don't have the windows of heaven open for me, then, hey, I'm, I'm out of that. I'm out of here. God just says do certain things, and we're supposed to do them, and He'll give us the answer when He gets good and ready, won't He? But if we have the attitude of mind of, well, I'm testing you, buster, in any form or depth of that, He's not going to answer with the way you want. It has to be a meek, humble, serving, loving, giving, trusting attitude like a little child. And if we don't have that, we cannot expect answers from God. Faith, trust, long-suffering, and patience are fruits of the Spirit of God. Maybe He wants you to wait for certain things until you come to show the fruit of the Spirit. Who are we to test God? He is there to test us. He's the one who gives salvation. We don't. What have you got you can give God? He's got it all. Can you imagine the Queen of Sheba saying, I wonder what I'm going to take Solomon. What do you give a man that has it all? So she just duplicated a bunch of stuff. The only thing we have that we can give God that He wants from us is our heart, our head, our mind, our emotions, our feelings, our faithfulness. That's what He wants. That's what He's after. Verse 32. Fear not. Do not worry. Do not have fear. Little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants to give us the kingdom so bad he can taste it. That is his whole goal and purpose for having human beings walking the face of the earth. He, from the heart, just wishes to share and to give and to love, to let us have what he's got. That's his motivation. That's his most internal desire, is to give us of his kingdom. The only way he's not going to give us his kingdom is if we won't give him our loyalty, our trust, our patience, our faith, our love, 
a response. But we're lackadaisical and take him for granted. Or think we're so righteous he couldn't help but give it to us. Maybe we don't really consider ourselves righteous, but certainly more righteous than our neighbors and our friends, our brothers and sisters in the church and our families. That's all the vanity you need. That's all the self-righteous you need to cut you out. He says, esteem others better than yourselves. First Thessalonians. Now there's a tall order. And he says that here in verse 33. Sell that you have. And give alms. Here's this rich man. You know, what he had in the barns he had was probably quite sufficient for him to have plenty to eat, drink, and be merry the rest of his life. It never occurred to him, why don't I just give everything else away? I've got enough in these barns. Why do I need bigger barns? Because he was self-centered and proud and self-righteous. Sell that you have and give alms. Isn't that what he told the young rich man that came and said, What shall I do to enter life? I know I'm about ready. Well, keep the commandments. Which? Started naming the ten. Well, I've always done that. All right, then sell what you got and give to the poor. Oh, wait a minute now. You're meddling. My money's my business. Not your business. Who do you think you are telling me to give my money away? First commandment, shot to pieces right there. As far as he needed to go. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that fails not. Where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupts. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whatever you treasure is where your heart is. Americans treasure money. Therefore, their God is money. They treasure uh, entertainment of various forms and kinds. Therefore, their God is entertainment. It doesn't really matter in one sense whether it's good entertainment or bad entertainment. If that's what their attention goes to, if that's what they spend their time doing, then it becomes bad entertainment, even though it by itself, per se, is not evil or sinful. If it takes your time and your life and takes it away from God and His people and serving and giving, then it is bad entertainment, because you're just wasting your time not doing things that would be productive and helpful to others. Then it becomes another God. Am I saying, don't ever watch a television? No. A, be very, very careful what you watch, and B, don't watch it so much that it consumes your life, and that's what your life becomes, is entertainment. And it isn't just the television, it's the computer, it's the iPod, it's the telephone, it's all the stuff we use 
to clutter our lives to the point we can't get anything spiritual accomplished and we don't have time to serve each other and serve what God is doing. Because we're wasting our lives on things that are not important and not doing the things that are important. That's when that becomes an idol, in a sense, just as much as money is. Whatever you treasure, whatever you spend your time with, whatever you do, that's where your heart is. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Didn't I say yesterday, our purpose here, one of our biggest purposes, right here, in this congregation, is to be a light to the world. Let your light be burning. Not just here, but everywhere you go, everything you do. Always be aware that you belong to God and that you are to act that way. And that you are there to set a light to the world, not to act like them when you're with them. And your fellowship is not to be with the world anyway, John says very clearly in its scripture. Let your loins be girded about. What does that mean? It means, when they wore robes, that they pulled them up and tied them in a certain way. I don't know exactly how. So they had free movement. They could run. They could work. They could fight wars. When you have your dress down around your ankles, it's kind of hard to chase cows. Or whatever. So they girded themselves up so they had free movement. But God is saying, get girded up. Be ready to move. Be ready to do things. And let your light shine. And you yourselves like men that wait for their eternal. When he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Be aware. Be alert. Be ready. Be prepared mentally and emotionally for the return of the groom to take us to the wedding. He's been up preparing a place. He's getting everything ready. And then he's going to come for his bride, take her to the wedding. We'd better be ready for that. That's what he's saying. That you open immediately. Remember the story in Song of Songs where the new wife He'd been on a trip, he came back, knocked on the door, and she said, oh man, all tucked in, I got my piddle and I got my teddy bear and I don't want to get up and get my feet cold on the floor to come open the door. While she went through this process of thinking it through and saying, okay, all right, I'll get up and let you in. What kind of relationship is that? Husband's been gone, comes home, open it yourself or crawl in the window. I'm in Betty by. Responsive, really. Uh, no, we're to have the mental, emotional mindset. I'll get up and open immediately. He's calling. He's there. Oh, goody, goody. Can't wait to see him.
Blessed are those servants whom the Eternal, when he comes, shall find watching, alert, not half asleep, not lackadaisical, watching. Truly I say to you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. He's already said to the disciples, the apostles, I'm not even going to drink wine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. He's going to be so excited, he's going to get up and do the serving. Food and wine. He is looking forward to that wedding supper so much. And he's looking forward to having a bride prepared so much. Come on, honey. You can do it. He's just waiting, hoping. Well, you're not going to do it. Go out the highways and byways and find somebody. We're going to have this wedding supper and I am going to get married. If you don't want to come up to scratch, I'll find somebody that will. He is going to marry 144,000. We can be some of that. We have been called. We have been given the opportunity. Now we can't throw it away. How many places today in the church of God do you hear this kind of reading of the scripture? It's pretty rare. Most of them are so busy trying to get the gospel preached in however form they think it ought to be, but they don't have time to push, to prod, to lead, to help the bride get herself ready. It's a secondary, tertiary thing. It's not the main goal and primary purpose. Well, that doesn't read like this, does it? Verse 38, and if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch. He doesn't come when you think he should. But it's another watch away, and it's another watch away. You know, we used to set goals and times we thought. Tribulation would start in 72. Some of you weren't even born. Christ would return in 75. 1975 in prophecy. Then it was 1982, and everybody's picked whatever ever since. Wasn't in the first watch, wasn't in the second watch. When's it going to be? Well, we really don't know for sure, do we? We know it's close, but we don't know. We don't even try to set dates. We just need to be ready. Doesn't matter. First watch, second watch, third watch. And find them so, blessed are those servants. And this, know. Know this. We listen. Hear, hear this. That if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. But be you therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not.
You can spend all your life trying to get it all figured out prophetically exactly when, and you're going to be wrong. So be ready. Always. Never. Get discouraged. Never take time off from your relationship with God. Work on it. Day in and day out, hour by hour and minute by minute, to get it right. Then Peter said to him, Hey, do you speak this parable to us <laughs> or even to all? Is it, is it just them or are you talking to us here? Good question. Is this just written for them back then? Or is he talking to us today? Is this a living word of God or is it not? Does it still apply? And the Eternal said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Who do you think is the one that gives the gifts? Who is the one who's in charge? Who is the one who has the capacity to do what needs to be done? Well, I think that should have been obvious. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. In other words, of course it applies to you. I'm the Lord. I can give the blessings. I have eternal life to give. You better be listening to me. Don't take me for granted. Yes, I'm talking to you. Of a truth I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Hasn't he promised that we will be kings and priests in the world tomorrow on the earth? Is the wife of the Lord and Master of the universe? You know, sometimes we talk about a guy that wants to marry a girl and he promises of the world. Anything you want, darling, you've got it. Here's one that can promise the world. He can give you everything you ever wanted, dreamed of, or could possibly fantasize about. You can take somebody like that for granted. But and if that servant shall in his heart, in his innermost being, doubt. And think, well, he's delayed his coming. He's you know, we thought it was in 75, we thought it might be 82, we might have thought it was 93 or 1004, or maybe it's 2027 after all. Well, man, I'm getting tired. When are you coming back? He said it'd be this way, didn't he? Didn't he tell us in Isaiah that I'm going to make these things all happen before the flesh fails before me? Didn't he also in Isaiah say, don't give me any rest until I make these things come to pass? I could go back and find those during the late 50s, early 60s of Isaiah. We've got a responsibility. Don't turn loose. Keep on. Be like a pit bulldog with your... Jaws chomp down on somebody. 
Don't turn loose. Don't give him any rest until he makes these things happen. You know what that does? You're not giving him any rest because you're praying daily, thy kingdom come, but it also doesn't give you any rest, does it? Because to pursue that hard and not give him any rest means that you are busy doing what needs to be done so that he doesn't have time to rest. So nobody gets any rest. The wicked need no rest and the righteous... No, the wicked get no rest, the righteous need none. That's the way the saying goes. Keep pushing. So we begin to get discouraged. Already lazy's coming. And shall begin to beat the men servants and maidservants, and to eat and drink, and to be drunk. All of the above. Now you say, well, I'm not getting drunk. Well, maybe you're not physically getting drunk, but... It's talking about an attitude here. Let's get the principle of this. Just because you say, well, I'm not a drunk, this must not be me. Well, there's more to it than that. It means that you're getting discouraged or frustrated or, when is this ever going to end? I'm getting tired. Haven't we felt some of those emotions at times? Weary? Tired of it all? I've had those feelings and emotions at times. I can't let them take over. That is the beginning of a spirit of bitterness. And once you get bitter, there's not much hope. Esau became bitter. And that bitterness pulled him away. And he sought repentance carefully and with tears. And couldn't find it because the bitterness had taken over. Do not even let the smallest feelings of bitterness creep into your mind. Put them out immediately. Control those thoughts. Because if they get hold, they're probably the hardest thing there is to get rid of. It's a tall order. Mr. Armstrong always said, the hardest thing to repent of is bitterness. And he was right. He may have based that on Esau, I don't know, but that was what he often said. How do we beat our men servants and maidens? Well, most of us don't even have literal slaves or servants. But we beat on each other. Our frustrations we might take out on each other. Our words. How we treat each other. We can be hard on each other, can't we? Sometimes are. That's what it is. Taking out your frustrations on someone else. Take them to God. Solve them. Don't whip upon each other. But that's the human thing to do. It comes so easy. Boss chewed on you. You chewed on your wife. Wife chewed on the kids. Kids kick the dog. Dog bites the cat. <laughs> it just happens that way. You get frustrated. We want to key off on somebody. That's what he says here, don't do. And to eat and drink. In other words, like the young rich man, or not the young rich man, but the man here who had all these treasures. Oh, I'll just eat and drink. 
I'll be merry. Too tired. Can't keep pushing. I'm never going to be perfect anyway. What's the use? We're not to let ourselves slip into that. I mean, this this is the context following the example of that fellow there. I have what I need, or maybe I don't have what I need, so I'll just eat and drink. And since I don't have what I need, I'll take it one step further than the rich the rich man. I'll drink my problems away, or smoke them away, or however you get rid of them. Chew on somebody else. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him. He's going to take him by surprise. And in an hour when he is not aware, because we get lost in our own little world and our emotions and our feelings and our attitudes toward others and so on, to the point we lose the readiness. So it will come as a surprise. And we'll cut him in sunder, chew him in little pieces and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Here you are, a believer, one who's been baptized, part of God's church. You begin to fall away in attitude and spirit and mind and you let yourself go that way and become a little bitter. And a lot of people became bitter toward the ministry and toward the church. Don't stay that way. You still got some of that? Get over it. How far are we? We're about a quarter century down the road from the time the church began to come apart, aren't we? Ain't it about time to get over it and move forward? Do we still beat that drum at times? What for? It's done. It's past. The wrongs were done. You're going to spend your life and your time and your emotion worrying about something somebody did to you 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Get a life. Move on. Move forward. Make things right now. Living in the past doesn't do you a bit of good. We've got to keep score, don't we? Got to remember all the things that were done to us or imagined or whatever they were, valid or invalid. Got to keep scoring, keep bringing them up. Get over it already. There's no room to talk about those things anymore. They're way gone, done, finished. Life's ahead. Learn from them. Don't repeat them. Verse 47, and that servant which knew his Lord's will, somebody that knew, was baptized, understood the truth, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. We will be held accountable for what we know. If we know, and we don't prepare ourselves, and be prepared, and be ready, and be alert, and watchful, and not asleep on the job, 
We will be okay. But if we go to sleep at the switch, he's going to beat us with many stripes. Because we will not be prepared and ready, and it will come as a surprise, and it will be a shocking surprise. There are a lot of people who think they're going to peter to a place of safety pretty soon, and they are not going there. A, it isn't the place of safety, and B, they would not be accounted worthy to go there if it were. Ninety percent of the church of God is going into the great tribulation. So say the prophecies. So that has to include a lot of people who think everything's A-OK, I'm doing all right. When the time comes, I'll go. No, they won't. No, they won't. How sad, how Shocking how disillusioning is that going to be when they find themselves in the Great Tribulation. It's going to come as a real shock. And I have many stripes. And maybe repent, and maybe not. And most likely, die horribly. And painfully. Don't worry about it, though. Yeah, that we better be concerned about. So don't worry about all this other stuff, but you better be concerned about this. Get the relationship right. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. If you don't know the truth, yeah, you're still going to get some stripes, but it ain't going to be like he who knew and didn't do. There's where the big stripes come. I know ain't isn't a good word, but I use it in the slang on purpose. To whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Oh, I, I missed that part. To whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. That's from the Lord above. And men also are going to ask more. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? You're stirring enough, enough trouble yourselves. And yet I'm coming to kindle fire as well. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and now am I straightened or in an emotional dither I am concerned about it till it be accomplished. Suppose you that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you no. Rather, division. Now blessed are the peacemakers. And he will come and make peace on the earth the second time around. But the first time he did not come here to bring peace. If he had, we'd have peace, wouldn't we? No, he didn't. He came to bring division. He came to call some, and then there would be war between them and those he didn't call. Let's see that. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, two against three, 
Father divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? He came to divide families and make them hate one another because of the truth. And it has happened. It's happened in your families and mine. And he said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straight away you say, there comes a shower, and so it is. That's where ours come from here, isn't it? Out of the west. That's interesting. So it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat, and it comes to pass. Our heat comes out of the southwest here. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. You can look it around and say, well, there's a cloud, it must be going to rain. But how is it you do not, not discern this time? How is it you were so asleep and so out of it that you don't realize what's going on? And you know, most of our people in this country are still. They're still plugged into their electronic toys and their jobs and their McMansions, although they're getting unplugged from those. The way of life that we've come to expect and enjoy in this country is being taken away, and yet most people still are blissfully unaware of what is going on around them. And even those who see the problems think that ten years from now, if you just have gold and silver, everything will be all right. You'll survive and everything will be fine. They don't know what's coming down. Hardly any of them. And it's almost, and it is at their doorstep. How can you not discern this time we're living in? Yes, and why even of yourselves judge you know not what is right? We know. We've been given much. When you go with your adversary to the magistrate as you are in the way, give diligence that you may be delivered from him, lest he hate you to the judge, and, or hail you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer cast you to prison. I tell you, you shall not depart thence till you have paid the very last mite. We have a worldwide conspiracy to rule the world, and it's going to happen. It'll be iron and miry clay and won't last long, but it's going to happen. The Bible says so. Are we going to make peace where we need to make peace? Are we going to be left behind to those who rule this world and Satan who has seduced them and is going to seduce the whole world away from God? Let's go to Matthew 25. And here I want to begin in verse 1. Very, very powerful for us. Well, let's back to chapter 24 a little bit. Uh, it sets the stage. He's talking about the end time. You know the prophecy in Matthew 24 about all the things that are going to come and the tribulation and fleeing and all that stuff. And then it talks about after the tribulation and the days of Noah, people are going to be like it was in the days of Noah. They're just going to be going through life, doing their thing, 
marrying and giving and marriage and eating and drinking and just going through life, everything as normal as usual. And they didn't know until Noah entered the ark and the rain started coming. They knew not till the flood came and took them all away, verse 39. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. They're going to solve the problem of the United States. They'll do away with it, destroy the horror and the fire. They'll have their new world government, and they'll think everything is hunky-dory. Let's just get on with life and get on with business. And our new currency has just saved us. And these new world leaders, boy, have they got it together. They've even got us a great new religion that everybody goes for, and that stops the religious wars. Everything is just going to look so good. They're going to think they got it whipped. Let's go down. Verse 44, speaking to us. Therefore, you be you also ready, of a ready mind. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? A question is asked. Who is wise and faithful? Are going to be very many. Um, Whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Not asleep at the switch. Truly I say to you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. He wants somebody alive, alert, active, busy, willing to serve, willing to give, willing to do, whenever, whatever he wants done. But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, this is essentially what Luke was saying, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint with him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, we don't dare go to sleep, do we? We don't dare let off the gas. We don't dare take it easy. We've got to rev it up, pedal to the metal. Let's go forward. Let's move. Somebody says, well, we're stagnant right now. We're getting discouraged, I guess. I don't know. I don't even know who said it. Could have been any one or all of us. What's going on? Well, my experience in this end time has been that God moves forward. He stops. He'll move forward. He stops. Follow the cloud. Wait for when he is ready to move. Meantime, what do you mean stagnant? If anything stagnant, it's us. Just because God doesn't titillate your senses with something new every day, does that mean you should be stagnant? What about the pit bull that has hold of him and says, I'm not turning loose till you make these things happen? You got no reason to be stagnant or asleep. You know what stagnant means? Have you ever seen water that sat 
in a barrel for a long time and how stinky it got because there was no movement, that's stagnant. We have plenty of movement ahead of us. What are you doing? Are you moving toward a better relationship with the bridegroom who is coming from a far journey soon? What do you mean we're stagnant? Maybe we're not into the middle of the next big project, but we have no excuse whatever to be stagnant. That's a personal problem. All right, chapter 25 then. Let's see if we can get through this today because it sets the stage for next time. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. So here we have the theme we've been talking about all along is the dynamics of this marriage-to-be, of our engagement to Christ. That's the subject of all this. Because he's coming for his bride soon, pictured by yesterday. But it wasn't this Feast of Trumpets, was it? So I feel okay about talking about it again today, a day after Trumpets, because it's still an event that is near but is not yet here. So he says, here's the way it is, boys and girls. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now we are here to go forth and meet the bridegroom, aren't we? That's our goal, that's our purpose, that's what we've committed our lives to do, is to marry Christ. Ah, but there's a problem. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Which are we? We wise or are we fools? Depends on how we react. Depends on what we do. Depends on what we're doing. Let's read on. Now, you, we can go into this and try to make all kinds of analogies about half the church and, and all this. It doesn't really matter to me at the moment. I just want to get the point and the principle of what he's talking about here, not the technical explanation of what the analogy really means in terms of numbers or who. But let's just look at the story about these people who all have the same goal, okay? Now, I know many, many other scriptures that show that 10% of the church is going to be faithful and come and build the temple, and 90% is not. I already know that. So that old 50-50 thing of half laid us in and half not doesn't work. God skewed the whole church out. We all became Laodicean. So whatever analogies may have been preached about this or whatever you've thought in the past don't necessarily fit the rest of Scripture, okay? It ain't no half and half thing, I don't think. It's just about people who are foolish and who are not. Now, that's the point we need to get, apart from our technicalities about the analogy. Some were wise and some were foolish. Those that were foolish, let's address the foolish ones. Because that's where the problem lies. The wise ones are not really a problem. It's the foolish ones that have the difficulty. 
They took no oil with them. They let the Spirit of God burn out. They were not alive and alert and awake and seeking God with their whole heart, and therefore the Spirit of God begins to wane in them. It gets weaker and weaker and throws out less light. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, Christ didn't come when we might have thought he should or would. And then we set another date and he still didn't. We've covered this ground several times today, haven't we, already? He tarried. They all slumbered and slept. Everybody got sleepy at the switch. Everybody got Laodicean. Everybody got lackadaisical. You know, you're, you're not really a live wire when you're asleep, are you? I don't know whether I sleep like that or not, but it doesn't matter. But you're, you're relaxed. You're out of it. Slumbered and slept. I use that in a spiritual analogy, and there was the church. So we went through that yesterday. Do we need to be spewed again today? Maybe not. They all went to sleep. Wise and foolish went to sleep. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Get you out to meet him. Now, we're trying here to cry pretty regularly. So this thing's getting closer. It's getting closer. Things are beginning to happen in the world. Things are going to happen in the church. We have a job to do. Let's be ready. Let's be girded. Let's be alert and alive and awake. Because there's going to come a cry at midnight, and it's going to be too late. Too late to wake up. Oh, I'm all nice and comfortable in my Betty Bye with my teddy bear again. Song of songs. Still applies. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are going out. We've, we've almost lost it. Help us here, please. Too late. Can't do anything for somebody. If they haven't themselves made their relationship with Christ what it ought to be, you can't give them the Holy Spirit at the last minute. That's something that has to come day by day working on the relationship. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Now, maybe these are the things that are leading up to Christ's return. Maybe they even have to do with the time the tribulation begins. I don't know. Not necessarily that he came that night, but midnight. We're in a pretty vast spiritual darkness in the church of God today. There's going to be a cry come. And you can't give what you've developed in your relationship to somebody else. It's, it's a personal thing. 
And while they went to buy, do you have to, who, who's going to have it? Those whom God chooses to protect, who have come together to build his temple, to build Jerusalem back, who are protected when it is defiled once more in a place of safety. They're the light to the world, set on a hill that cannot be hid. They're the ones who will be preaching then during that time worldwide as a final warning to the world and the beast and the false prophets. They're the ones who will have what is needed. But most of the church will deny that. Can you believe that? what Scripture says. Just won't buy it. He said, go to those that have. Get it for yourself. Yeah. While they went to buy, it was too late. It was just too late to get it done. The bridegroom came. Remember there in, Matthew, in Revelation 22? It's too late. Let those that are filthy be filthy still. Let those that are just be just still. You either got there or you didn't get there. It's too late. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. Didn't it say here about preparing the bride a little earlier? Getting herself ready. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Funk. Shut. Done. Too late. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I don't even know you. I don't know you. You're not ready. You don't have the Spirit of God burning brightly. I don't know you that way, little man. Someone said one time. I thought it was very classic. That's what Christ is going to say. What do you mean, marry you? I don't know you. You don't do what I say. I don't know you. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered them his goods. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. And every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. We all have different abilities, have different talents, different capacities, but it's open to all of us. Just because you may not physically, mentally have the talent someone else does, doesn't mean salvation is not open to you. It is. Doesn't matter whether you got five, two, whatever. He that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. Likewise, he had received two, he also gained other two. At least he redoubled things. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. He said, you know, I'm not as talented as these other people. How can I do anything? Woe is me. I don't have much talent, so I guess I better just hang on to what I got. Not try anything, because I can't accomplish anything anyway. So it's not even worth putting forth the effort. After a long time, the Lord of those servants comes and reckons with them. 
So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five more. He said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter you into the joy of your Lord. So if you had five, if you had capacities and abilities, you're expected to produce. And if you do, well and good, enter. He that had two came and said, You gave me two, and I've gained two besides that. He said, "Done, Well done, good and faithful servant. I'll make you ruler over many, because you did well with little. So, there's no real difference there between the guy that started with five and the guy that started with two. They both increased it double, and they both got a wonderful reward. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you that you are a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not strawed. And therefore I was scared. I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the earth, and here you have that which is yours. That was his justification for not overcoming, for not growing, for not changing, for not producing. I ain't got much, so I guess I better save what I got and just give it back to him. His Lord answered and said to him, You wicked, slothful, lazy servants, you knew that I reaped where I sowed not and gathered where I have not strawed. You ought therefore to have at least put the money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have at least gotten interest out of the deal, even if you couldn't produce anything else. Take therefore the talent from him and give it to him which has ten talents. It doesn't make any difference how much brains we've got, what our background is, he just expects us to grow from where we started. If you didn't have much, so what? Grow, overcome, change, be different, produce fruit, serve, help, give unabridgedly to others. And you will be rewarded. Sometimes, when we get around somebody smarter than we are, it makes us feel a little discouraged and inadequate, doesn't it? And ineffective. And yet I've seen people who are real smart that I felt that way around because I'm not all that bright. And I see them not doing much either. And sometimes I'm glad I'm not real smart. Because I see smart people get so excited about themselves and so intellectually vain that they can't produce anything but ego anyway. So it isn't always that good to be that bright. Besides that, God told us He's going to call the weak and the base, didn't He? Well, here we are, brethren. That's us. We're the one given one. Let's get busy. We don't have to look at ourselves and say, hmm, who has five? Who has two? We're the weak in the base. Just do with what you got. Don't get him back where you started. Let's at least get better than we were. Give him something. He wants to marry us. 
Sure, we started weak in base. We're not supposed to stay that way. We're supposed to become brighter because of this and because of Him and His Spirit flowing through us. That's the brightness. That's the light. That's the growth and the improvement that we need to do. Don't be discouraged because we didn't have much. We'd all just go eat worms and die, wouldn't we? You don't want us to do that. Produce. Verse 29, For unto every one that has shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that has not shall be taken away even that which he had. Oh, it wasn't very bright. Well, you're still not very bright. Sorry. Out. Next. Cast you the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is going to happen. There are some who aren't going to make it. Let's not be any of those. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all peoples, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Sheep are meek. Sheep are mild. Sheep are easily led. Goats are kind of Arrogant, hard-headed, have their own independence, and I'll do what I want no matter what you say, and I'll butt you if you disagree with me. That's a goat. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I've been wanting to give you this ever since this idea of this world came to my mind. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Huh? God's eternal. He's immortal. He has everything He wants. How did He ever get hungry or thirsty? Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. God was sick. He's eternal. He doesn't get sick. You visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or fed you and fed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? You're not those things. You've never been that way. How what do you mean? When did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. Then shall he say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we you hungry, or thirsty, or strange, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and didn't help you? We, ne we, we never saw you that way. 
And we would have helped you if you'd have been that way. Man, if you'd have been hungry, Lord, I'd have killed a fatted calf. I'd have gone milk the cow. I'd have taken care of you like Abraham did. And there's nothing in my house I wouldn't have done for you. If you'd have been naked, I'd have said, well, he said. If you'd have been in prison, I'd have brought you a care package and I'd have come to see, I'd have come see you every day. Lord, my, if you had ever been any of those things, I would have taken care of you. I love you, Lord. I'd do anything for you. That's the way we feel about God, don't we? Our own hearts, our minds, our emotions. Anything God wanted, we'd do it for Him, wouldn't we? Anybody here say, no, I wouldn't do that for you, Lord? No. We'd all want to help him out if he had trouble, wouldn't we? Wouldn't have mattered what time of day, night, day of the week, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We'd have been right there every day, any time he needed something, we would have been there. Wouldn't have mattered how dirty a job, how much we didn't like it, how good we were at it. Anything he needed, we'd be there. Oh, Lord, you're judging us a little harshly here. Man, you think I wouldn't do anything for you if I thought you had me? (coughs) Then shall he answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, the least esteemed, the least important of these people, anybody you turned down, anybody, anytime, anywhere you turned down who had any of these needs, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Do we really grasp what he's saying here? We all claim to love God. We all claim to want to obey his commandments, his statutes, his ordinances. We've all agreed to do that. But what he's telling us right here is that the way we treat each other is what we actually think of him. He's the bridegroom. We are the prospective bride. And how we treat each other as members of the body of Christ, of the body he wishes to marry, the body of the bride, is exactly, precisely, how we will be judged. Do we really get that? Would we stab Christ in the back? Oh, God forbid! Would we gossip about the Holy One? God forbid! Would we turn away in any opportunity of community service? Or giving, 
or helping each other in any way. God forbid we do that to Christ. Anything you say, Lord, I'm here, I'll do it. Anytime, anywhere, any place, anything. Well, would you come help do this? Oh, I'm kind of busy right now. Will you help so-and-so do it? Well, I don't get along too well with him. How many thousands of excuses do we have for not wanting to be molested, put upon, asked, volunteered? How many times do we miss out on enriching and filling our treasure trove, our barn in heaven, and being rich toward God? When we treat each other the way we think we are treating Christ is when we are building treasure in heaven. But when we treat each other any less than, any less than the way we think we would treat Him, He says He will put us in the lake of fire. Because He will judge us precisely by how we treat one another. That's literally what this scripture is saying. Your judgment, my judgment, for eternity is based upon how we treat each other. 